Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Last week, we learned that the intent behind the mitzvah determines what happens to the mitzvah. If the mitzvah is, is propelled upward or if the mitzvah remains flat, if there's no intent, if there's no energy behind the mitzvah, there's no life force behind the mitzvah, then the mitzvah is flat. It goes nowhere. It sits. Like a stone, like a corpse, it just sits, no movement. If you have intent, the intent is the energy that propels the mitzvah. There's no energy, there's no, there's no movement. That's the sign of life, movement. If there's no life, there's no intent behind the mitzvah, there's no motivation to do the mitzvah. You're not investing any conscious motivation, you're just doing it out of habit. So there's no energy, it's lifeless. Now we're going to learn that there's something even worse than that. That is, if there's a negative energy that propels the mitzvah. You have a positive energy, then you have no energy. But then you have a negative energy. There is a motivation, there is an intent, there is a drive that's pushing the mitzvah, but the intent is negative. It's arrogance, egotistical. What's motivating you to do the mitzvah? What's motivating you to study the Torah? It's ego. So you're investing in the mitzvah, which is divine, which is pure. You're investing in negative. So the negative energy will wrap wraps itself around the mitzvah. So what happens to the mitzvah then? You're schlepping the mitzvah. You're pulling the mitzvah down into an inappropriate place. So how does that possible that we say mitzvah lo lishma v'alishma? So we should do it anyways, even though... Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. Let's... Uh, Let's, uh, let's learn inside. 555, however. However, when one engages in divine service, explicitly not lishma, but for an ulterior motive of self-glorification, as for example, in order to become a scholar and the like, then this motive, which is derived from Klipa Noga, clothes itself in his Torah study. And the Torah study for this motive is in the state of exile while within the Klippa. So what if the motivation to do the mitzvah, to study Torah, is because you want to show off? You want to show everyone how brilliant you are. You want to get the, the, the fame, the glory. You know that in certain circles, how are you going to become famous? How are you going to stand out? How are you going to get the glory? What's going to set you apart from everyone, above average, if you excel in learning? You show what a sharp mind you have, what a sharp brain you have, what a sharp pencil you are. You show how brilliant you are, people are going to respect you. Wow, what a Torah scholar. And that gives you tremendous satisfaction. So you're completely ego-motivated. Ego you're not motivated to study because it's divine. You're motivated to study, to brag, to show off. It gives you egotistical self-satisfaction. So not only... 
aren't you becoming divine? Isn't the Torah study refining you and making you more divine? On the contrary. The Torah is having the exact opposite effect on you. Moshe, every, every bit of Torah that he studied, he became more humble. He was the most humble person that lived. The ultimate Torah, the Torah of Moshe, the receiver of the Torah, every bit of Torah that he learned refined him, made, her, made him a better person. Here it's the exact opposite. Every bit of Torah that you study turns you, makes you even more impossible, more arrogant, more taken by yourself. It has the exact opposite effect. So the Torah, which is holy, is actually fueling the antithesis of holiness. It's making you impossible. It's making you so arrogant, so distant, so far away from Hashem. Hashem says, I can't be in the four cubits of an arrogant person. And here, the divine Torah, Hashem's Torah, is causing you to push away the divine. So what happens is that the Torah goes into exile. It's like taking someone and putting him in prison. Against his will. The person is there. But he's locked. He's locked in prison. He does not free to move around as he he wishes. So too, when you study Torah, you have the divine. You're doing something divine. Torah is divine. So the Torah has no choice. The Torah is there with you. In your klippa, in your negative situation, in your arrogance, in your filth, you're schlepping the Torah there. The Torah is there with you. You have no choice. The Torah, the holiness is there because you studied the Torah. Your mind understood the Torah. You studied the Torah. So you have the Torah. And the Torah is one with God. So you have the divine. You're holding the divine by your hands and you're dunking it in the toilet. There's nothing you can do. You have the divine. You have the mitzvah. You have the... But it's, it's an asari situation. It's an exile. The godliness, the holiness is covered up, is concealed. And cannot move around freely. Cannot express itself freely. Instead of the holiness and the godliness emanating and moving freely, here is the exact opposite. The holiness is completely concealed and hidden and trapped. It's trapped in your egotistical state. That's exile. And that's painful. Just like for a person to be in exile is the most painful, the most unnatural state for a person to be in exile. Exile is, comp- is compared to death. You're trapped. You know, now you're not free. You can be in a minimal security prison. But you're, you're exiled. You might as well be dead. Because you're trapped. You can't express yourself freely. So it's tremendously painful. So for the Torah, for the divine, it's like exile. It's tremendously painful to be in a situation where the person is completely arrogant and egotistical, where the person has not refined himself, where the person has not been transformed by the Torah. If the Torah was studied properly, if you digest the Torah and you study it properly, the Torah refines you. The Torah has an influence on you. The Torah has an impact on you. And the Torah is free. The Torah soars. But when the Torah has the exact opposite effect, the Torah fuels your ego and your arrogance, the Torah is trapped. The Torah is in pain. An agony. So if you go into the, the Torah with the wrong intent, what it humbles you? When you study or you pray, so then it's a positive thing. So you go in with the wrong intent, but it humbles you. Yeah. What do you mean? How is that possible? So it, just the, the, the prayer itself changes you. Oh, it changes you. Well, we're going to learn. We're going to learn 
in a minute, he's going to quote the Talmudic rabbis that say that a person should always learn with the improper intent, because eventually it will lead you to the proper intent. So let's, let's continue. You want to continue? And the Torah study for this motive is in a state of exile within the klipa, but only temporarily until he repents, since repentance brings healing to the world. But when he returns to Hashem, his Torah returns with him from klipa mm-hmm. to holiness. Because the Torah is waiting to be released. The Torah is waiting to be redeemed. The Torah itself is divine. The Torah is against, against its own essence. The Torah is in the state of klip and filth, exile, trapped, imprisoned. But the Torah itself is good. The Torah is divine. What happens when you do teshuva? When you allow God to reach your heart and you change and you open your heart? And now you're in a holy place? So the Torah has been released. All the holy Torah, all that Torah that you studied suddenly now becomes re-elevated and reconnected and it soars back to its proper place, to the divine. So it's true as like a healing. You heal, you bring the body back to its, to its natural state of health. Therefore, Therefore, our rabbis of blessed memory said one should always engage in Torah and mitzvot, even Shalishma, for out of Shalishma, he will certainly arrive at study and observance since it is certain that he will ultimately repent. So the rabbis say that a person should always study Torah, even not for the proper sake, for the proper intent. Even if you're egotistically motivated, you should study Torah. Why? Because by studying Torah for the wrong reasons, eventually you'll come to study Torah for the right reasons. As Maimonides says, the Talmud says, Le'olam. Le'olam means forever. You must. Why is this a must? Everyone must study Torah for the wrong intent? And the answer my Maimonides says is yes. Because that's education. Just like a child. A child, you can't get a child to study for its own sake. For learning's sake. A child is too young. A child doesn't grasp. A child can't appreciate. A child is motivated by candies, by toys. You have to bribe a child to learn. That's the way of the world. So the Talmud says, there is no way around it. It's not to something wrong. That's the, way, that's the way you have to educate a child. So first you teach him, learn. You get a sweet candy, you'll get a reward, you get a pat on your back, you'll, you'll be awarded, you'll be acknowledged, you'll be ahead of, the cl- ahead of the class. That's the only way. Eventually, once you have a taste for learning, for all the wrong reasons, but once you start learning, there reaches a moment when eventually you'll discover the pleasure of learning for learning's sake. You don't need any external motivation to get you to learn. Eventually, you develop a taste for learning, and learning is its own pleasure. So too, with the divine, first you learn for ulterior motive. But eventually, you will discover the proper motive. That will lead you to the proper motive. And that's why it says, it says that a, a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, needs an eighth of an eighth of gaiva. Everyone needs a little arrogance. A little... Otherwise, you'll be a doormat. You can't just be a doormat. You have to have pride. So even a Torah scholar who's very modest and very humble has to have an eighth of an eighth, or eight times eight, one-sixty-fourth of... Not one-sixty-third. Sixty-third in Hebrew is gas. Sag, Samar Gimel, if you turn the letters around, Gas means arrogant. It means a grab young, a, a, a coarse person. 
So if a person is, has 163rd of arrogance, makes you coarse. 164th, it's just a touch, a pinch, a touch of, of arrogance to give you a little backbone, to give you a little strength, not to be a doormat. And, and the Talmud continues that it's good for a Torah scholar, a little arrogance is good for a Torah scholar, kisasa l'shibolta, like, like the petals of the rose. What's the idea? So Alter Rebbe explains, the author of the Tanya explains elsewhere, I believe in Torah Ur, he explains that the whole concept of a klipa, of a shell, let's say a wheat stalk, comes with a shell. The shell serves a purpose. If it had no shell, it would be destroyed. The sun would destroy it, the rain would destroy it. So it needs protection, which allows the kernel to grow. Once the kernel grows, then you separate, you thresh. You separate the shaft from the wheat, from the kernels. You throw away the shaft. You let the wind blow it away. And what's left is the kernel. That's the substance. But the, the shell serves a purpose, a very productive purpose. He says, so too with a person. The shell is the ego. The ego serves a purpose. A person needs, initially, a person needs a certain arrogance. Otherwise, what's going to motivate you? What's going to motivate you to serve a God? What's going to motivate you to study Torah? In the beginning, you have to be motivated by ego. You want to be a spiritual person. You want to be somebody. You want to develop yourself spiritually. So you have an ego motivation. You want to do something that's valuable, something that's meaningful, something that's precious. So your ego motivates you, and that fuels your growth. That protects you. Because in the beginning, it's like a tiny little seed. When the seed starts sprouting, it's so easy for that seed to be destroyed. A little rain, a little sun, and it's all over. It's, it's like a little budding seed. It's so easy to be trampled on, you need someone to protect it. So that ego protects it. It, uh, it encourages you to continue on your path, to develop yourself spiritually, and to study Torah. It's the only way. That's why the Talmud says, Lo'ilam, there is no other way. Because if you don't have, if the seed doesn't have... If the kernel doesn't have the, the shell to protect it and to allow it to grow till it's ready and it's ripe, it'll never reach that point. Because initially, your initial motivation, your initial, it's like when, when it sprouts from the ground, it's such a tiny little, so easy to trample and to, it's, you have to protect it. It's very delicate. It's not mature. It's not ripe yet. So you need that protection and the ego protects it. The ego is hard, and the ego, I'm motivated, I want to be somebody, I want to be someone spiritual, and I want to be close to God, and I want to, I want to develop, and I want... And that's, that's healthy. That's a healthy motivation. It's using the ego for a healthy thing. It's a healthy ego, a healthy eye. And that's the shell that protects and nurtures and allows you for this budding that's just springing up from the ground, allow it to nurture and to develop until it's ripe. Once it's ripe, there goes the shell. I don't need a shell anymore. I don't need it. That was just a means to an end. I don't need the means anymore. Now I have the end. Now I have a fully developed kernel. Now I'm ready to transform, to have something good. I don't need anything external. And then the ego is not necessary. That's why the Talmud says a, a Torah scholar needs one 64th of a little arrogance because you need that motivation. If you don't have that mo- initial motivation... You would never, ever reach the point of lishma. You would never reach the point where you can be self-sustaining, 
where you could be more, totally motivated by pure godliness. And the Hasidus explains every word in the Talmud is precise. When the Talmud says, meaning, in, in the you have the lishma. In the egotistical motivation, you have the proper motivation. Because deep down, every soul is good. Every soul is the godly. So deep down, the soul wants to do the right thing. Even if you're not aware of it. Even if you're not conscious of it. So you think that you're doing it for egotistical reasons. But while you're externally, consciously motivated by ego, subconsciously, your soul is motivated by purely divine motives. Therefore, the Talmud is certain that inevitably, the Talmud doesn't say maybe, maybe, perhaps, from the ego motivation, you'll graduate to a pure motivation. No, the Talmud states it as the Alter Rebbe is going to say, as a matter of fact, that certainly, from this motivation of Shaloi Lishma, certainly you're going to come to the Lishma. How can the Talmud be certain you're going to come to the Lishma, to the proper motivation? Because deep down, your soul, wants to, your soul already has the proper motivation. It just has to emerge and surface. So once you're already studying Torah, and your soul is already on fire, your soul is learning for all the right reasons. You don't, you don't know about it. You're not even aware of it. It doesn't change the fact. Your soul is motivated for all the right reasons. So once you're already studying Torah for the right reasons, even though externally, consciously, it's covered up by all the wrong reasons, and you're schlepping it down into hell, and you're schlepping the Torah down into exile... But deep down, your soul is doing it for the right reason. Therefore, inevitably, this proper intention will emerge and will surface. And inevitably, you'll end up learning for the right reasons. It will surface, it will conscious. Your subconscious will integrate with your consciousness. And eventually, the Torah itself will bring you back to the holiness, to the proper, proper intention. The truth is, is even a deeper explanation. It not only that deep down your soul wants to do the right thing. And therefore your soul has a proper motivation, a proper intention. It's much deeper than that. It's even your ego motivation. What's behind your ego motivation? In the itself, in the ego motivation, the ego motivation itself also comes from a holy place. Like the Baal Shem Tev said, when a body is hungry, when a Jew is hungry, you think you're hungry because you're hungry. He says, no, you know why you're hungry? Because your soul is hungry. You're hungry for the godly sparks. But you're not in tune. You don't, you don't speak that language. So you think you're hungry because you're hungry, because you want to fresh, you want to, you want to hungry, you have a delicious meal, you want to eat. No. You don't realize what your, your real hunger is for the godly sparks. So it's not only that deep down there's a whole different dimension within you that you're completely blissfully unaware of that has a life of its own and there's a whole different set of motivations that's driving you that you complete. But on the surface, you're motivated by ego which is completely negative. No, it's much deeper than that. The negative itself that you think is negative, deep down of the negativity, it's really positive. Why are you motivated to study Torah? You think you're motivated for ego. It's not so. What really motivating you is because you're a Jew and you want to connect to the divine and therefore you study, you're motivated to study Torah. So you have a hunger to study Torah. But since consciously you're egotistical, it's the only language you understand. 
So it expresses itself, oh, I want to become a great Torah scholar. I want to show off. I want to, I want to be famous. I want to stand out. I want to be head and shoulders above everyone. I want to... But really, what's motivating you? What's motivating you is because your soul senses that you have the ability to become a master of Torah. And therefore, you have a motivation to become a master. What you think for all the wrong reasons. But the truth is, deep down, what's really driving you is really your godly motivation. And that's why. That's why the Alter Rebbe says two things here, two novel things here. Because the way you learn the Talmud simply, you can learn. The rabbis say you should learn Torah even for the wrong reasons. Because maybe, it'll, maybe eventually it will lead you for the right reason, for the right motivation. The rabbi says, no. The Talmud is telling us that inevitably, it's a guarantee. If you study Torah for the wrong reasons, the Talmud says we guarantee you that eventually you're going to study Torah for the right reasons. It's novelty number one. Novelty number two, he's saying that not only that eventually it's going to lead you to study Torah, and therefore the Torah that you will eventually study will be with a proper intention. No, all the Torah that you've already studied will also be elevated. Once you discover the Lishma, once you discover the right reason, all the Torah that retroactively, all the Torah that you've already studied will also be elevated. And why is that? Because, so firstly, the first, for the first novelty, the reason is because since deep down, while you're studying Torah for, for the wrong intentions, deep down there is a, you have a proper intention without your awareness, without your knowledge, without your conscious knowledge, but deep down your soul is motivated for the right reasons. It has a life of its own. Therefore, inevitably, this will emerge and this will surface. When you study Torah and your soul is on fire, eventually this proper intention will emerge and surface. So the, it's a guarantee. How could the Torah that you're studying retroactively, how could that be elevated when you study Torah egotistically and arrogantly and you schlep the Torah into exile? And the answer is because the truth, there's a deeper explanation. That deep down, even the motivation of the ego, where is it coming from? Just like when a Jew is hungry, where is that physical bodily hunger coming from? It's really a godly hunger. That's why we have this insatiable appetite, because we have this godly hunger. So too, this hunger to study Torah for egotistical reasons, what's, what's its real source? Where is it really coming from? It's coming from godliness. And therefore, once you connect, and once consciously you start, start studying Torah Lishma, once that emerges and surfaces and integrates and becomes part of you, then retroactively, all the Torah that you studied, even the Torah that you studied while you were studying it arrogantly, that Torah also becomes elevated. All the Torah in the past that you studied. Because deep down, while you studied the Torah, what was the real motivation behind it? Well, it was all godly, a godly motivation. That's how connected we are. Without even us realizing. That's what the Torah says. You should always study Torah. Don't get so excited. Even if you're studying Torah for the wrong reasons, don't worry. Eventually, the Torah will have an impact on you. And eventually, it will get to you. The Torah will get to you. It says elsewhere, the, 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 the luminary of the Torah, the soul of the Torah, eventually will get to you and will reach you and will refine you. Eventually. And the Torah promises, no Jew, every Jew will do teshuva. No Jew will be left behind. This is a, a very powerful promise. Sometimes it's the most difficult. A person who studies Torah arrogantly. Because there's two types of motivation. There's a motivation 
in, within negativity itself, there are different types of negativity. There's negative and there's negative. There's negative, you want to show off, you want to boast, you want to excel, you want to stand out, you want honor, fame. But then there's negative where you're studying Torah for negative reasons. You want to show disrespect for others, you want to embarrass your teacher. Like very nasty. There could be a, a motivation which is arrogant, but you want to show off, but you want to study Torah also. So it's like a twilight zone, a combination. You're studying Torah, you know it's holy, but you also want to have a good time, you want to have fun while studying. Show off a little and be acknowledged and become famous and people should honor you and respect you. But then there's a nasty motivation where you're using to trump your teacher or to embarrass your teacher. Or, you know, so it's a very negative, a very nasty ego, a very childish ego, a very immature ego. It's one thing to become number one. That's a healthy ego, you know. But then you have a very childish, nasty ego. And in that case, the Talmud uses very sharp language. It's better the person should never have been born. They're going to study Torah with such a nasty intention. It's better. So there are distinctions. We don't always say a person should always study Torah no matter what. If a person studies Torah with very nasty, negative intentions, Torah says better he should never have been born. But Allah states, no matter what, a person should always study Torah. Because eventually God promises that everyone will do Teshuvah. No matter how, how far you are, eventually everyone will do Teshuvah. And once you do Teshuvah, it will bring you healing. And retroactively, even the Torah that you've elevated, that you exile, and you study it in a very negative state, and you drag the Torah down into the, into the, the abyss, into exile, nevertheless, even that Torah eventually will be healed and that Torah will be, will be elevated. So the Torah promises. So sometimes it's very difficult when you meet a person who's so arrogant, who's so egotistical, who studies Torah for all the wrong reasons, it's very, very difficult to deal with because when a person sins, a person knows he, he's doing something wrong. He's not going to delude himself that he's doing something right. He knows he's a sinner. He has a human weakness. And he sins. He's not proud of it. He's not going to parade it in public. He's embarrassed. Listen, I'm human. <laughs> I have weaknesses. What can I do? can't help myself. But there's hope. He can change. He would like to change. He feels helpless. He feels weak. I can't change. At least there's an honesty there. But when a Torah scholar uses Torah for all the wrong reasons, he's studying Torah for egotistical reasons, to self-aggrandizement, to become more arrogant, but it only fuels his arrogance. It's very, very difficult, because in his mind, I'm studying Torah. I'm so righteous. I'm so special. He doesn't even know that he's doing something wrong. So how is this person ever going to do truth? The more Torah he studies, the farther away he is from the divine. The more arrogant he becomes. The more God hates that person, despises that arrogance. And yet he thinks he's so close to God. He's so delusional. So that's very, very difficult not to crack. It's worse than the sinner. A sinner, God says, I can live with a sinner. But find me a person who's not a sinner, who's a Torah scholar, who's arrogant. God says, I can't stand this person. Can you imagine God saying that about someone? As infinite as God is, and as infinite as His patience is, He has infinite patience with us, and with our sins, with our weaknesses, with our human foibles. But meet someone who's arrogant. He hasn't sinned. He's a great, giant Torah scholar. But he's arrogant. God says, I can't stand this person. I despise this person. I can't be in his, in his four cubits. 
you imagine God saying that about a person? The biggest sinner, God says, I have no problem. I can live with him. No problem. He doesn't bother me. But this Torah scholar with his nose up to the ear, so arrogant, holier than thou, so proud of himself. God says, I can't stand. I hate him. Can you imagine? And the person is so oblivious. He thinks, me, me and God are like this. I mean, it, it, it delusional. How do you reach such a person? person hasn't studied a word of Talmud, goes by all his life, all he does is study Talmud, never studies a word of Hasidus. Doesn't spend one moment studying about godliness, about his godly soul, about becoming egoless. It's all about arrogance, me, myself, and I, and how brilliant I am, how sharp I am, how many ways I can answer a this eight ways, nine ways. And that's what it's all about. That's what life is all about. Instead of the Torah humbling you, breaking your heart into a thousand pieces, making you close to godliness, and making you close to your fellow Jew, and loving your fellow Jew, you become this ivory tower, distant, remote, impossible, unbearable. And the person is completely oblivious. It's very hard to take. God says, I can't take this person. Imagine God can't take someone. It's hard to imagine. How do you reach such a person? And nevertheless, the Torah says, God promises, even that person, there's hope. We don't know how it's going to happen. Only God can promise that. But God promises. Even the most distant person, even the coarsest, the grossest person. There's no one coarser, there's no one more gross than someone who's arrogant, than someone who studies Torah because of arrogance, whose whole motivation is arrogance. The more Torah he studies, the more arrogant he becomes, the more God despises him. And yet, God promises that even that low, disgusting person, even that person, eventually God promises before Mashiach comes, or when Mashiach comes, no Jew will be left behind. Somehow, God will even bring back that person. Break his heart. Open him up to godliness. Open him up to chassidus. It's a promise God makes. Not a single Jew will be left behind. No Jew will be left behind. And once the person, once the person finds his way back to godliness, and then his Torah becomes pure, his Torah becomes holy and his Torah becomes sweet and godly and God says now this person has become a Baltruva this person is close to me then all the Torah that he studied retroactively all those years and years and years of studying Torah retroactively will be elevated that's what the Talmud says that's the promise that the Talmud says so the Torah is saying that a person should always study Torah even if you're in a very negative place, a very dark place, and you're schlepping the Torah, it's a Rachmanus on the Torah. It's a Rachmanus on Abaya, it's a Rachmanus on Rava. It's a Rachmanus on all these holy Tanoim and Amiroim, and Taisvish and Rashi and the Rambam and the Rajba that are being schlepped into, uh, into Allah Shvartziyar, being schlepped into the darkest dungeons because of your arrogance and your impossible ego. 
But what can you do? <laughs> Torah says you have to continue learning. And eventually Hashem will have Rachmanus on you. Will have mercy. And eventually you will find your way back home. Eventually you will become a mensch. Eventually you will become a godly person. Eventually the Torah will soften you. The Torah will reach you. The Torah will change you. and will elevate you. But if a person has a choice, if a person has a choice, better wake ourselves up and wait for Hashem to wake us up. Because Hashem could wake us up. He knows how. <laughs> he wants to break our heart. He knows how to break our heart. A wise man doesn't wait for Hashem to shake us up. A wise man does it on his own. How do we do it on our own? So Hashem in His kindness, in His infinite kindness, handed to us on a silver platter. He gave us the medicine. You want to know how to do it? Study the light of the Torah. The essence of the Torah. The Talmud says, The luminary of the Torah will return you back to good. What is the luminary of the Torah? This is Hasidus, the crown jewels of the Torah, the core, the essence of the Torah, the divine essence of the Torah. When you study Hasidus, and you study Tanya, and you learn it properly, and you digest it, and you internalize it, and you make it a part of your daily life and daily study, you're talking about godliness. When you're studying Hasidus, you're talking about the soul. You're talking about the godly things. You're talking about the infinite. You're talking about Hashem. It has to have an effect on you. It has to have an impact on you. It has to refine you. You're talking about godly things. It's very difficult to be arrogant and egotistical when you're talking about going beyond your ego, transcending your ego, the infinite. So when you're dealing with godly things, it's like a depth charge. It touches the depth of your soul. It's the language of the soul. When you're talking about exchanging an axe for a donkey, and sometimes you could be the donkey. If there's no inner soul in your life, if there's no inner learning in your life, if there's no realization that the Torah is the body of the Torah, but the Torah also has a soul, and there's an inner meaning to this ox and the donkey, and how it relates to your personal life. If your whole consciousness is only about the ox and the donkey, and the legality of the uh, what happens if you exchange an ox and a donkey, and that's the only, that's the sum total of your whole engagement in Torah. The body of the Torah. Then it's like a corpse without a soul. As Chaim Vital writes, that the four parts of the Torah is Pshat, Remez, Drush, Soid. As the Rambam refers to it as Pardis. As the Talmud refers to it as Pardis. As a garden. Beautiful, lush garden. The trees. Pardis. He says, what if you take out the Samach? Right? You take out the Soy, the secrets of the Torah, the Kabbalah. You're left with Peret, a mule. Then, then the, the ox and the, the Mishnah is talking about, you are the ox, you're the mule. A person who goes through life, especially 300 years after the Baal Shem Tev, after Hashem is revealed, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev, and doesn't study Hasidus, and doesn't study the inner parts of the Torah, so Hashem made life easier for us. A person could, if you want, you can travel to Philadelphia on a horse and buggy. You could. 
Our parents did it 300 years ago. That's how people travel. So someone says, why do we have to study Hasidus? Our ancestors didn't study Tanya. 300 years ago, they didn't study Tanya. 400 years ago, they didn't study Hasidus. So if it was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Well, firstly, our ancestors didn't have the internet and didn't have all the distractions and all the Hasidai that we have today and all the temptations that we have today. And they didn't read a paper every day. They lived in a holy environment. So they didn't need Hasidus, maybe. Well, they had it naturally, instinctively. But even if it works for you, yes, you can travel horse and buggy. 400 years ago, no one had cars. Imagine someone saying, I'm going to use a computer. No. I'm traditional. My parents didn't have computers. I live like the Amish. I don't have computers. I don't, I don't use anything modern. I'm going to travel to Philadelphia. I might as well set aside three weeks. <laughs> and I'll start my journey now. God made life easier for you. You can be there in one and a half hours, two hours. To Israel, forget about it. It's a half a year's journey. I have to go by boat, not a modern boat, an old boat that they used 500 years ago. That's foolish. God made life easier for you. You can be there in 11 hours. You're going to waste your time and energy and such nonsense. God made you can get to the same way so much quicker, so much easier, so much... God gave us the answer in a silver platter. That's why he revealed the Baal Shem Tev. He revealed the Tanya, revealed all these Hasidic teachings in order to enable a Jew in a Pentium minute, in a Pentium moment, in the jet age, to achieve the same thing, but to get there so much quicker and so much smoother. and so To be able to achieve the Lishma, to be able to study Torah Lishma for the right reasons. A Torah that's illuminated. A Torah that emanates light. A Torah that emanates love. A Torah that emanates godliness and egolessness. A Torah that refines us, that inspires us, that moves us, that changes us. Instead of the Torah being harsh and negative and weighing us down, schlepping us down and schlepping the Torah into exile. So for a person today to deliberately choose not to study Hasidus, of course the Torah promises eventually every Jew will do Teshuvah. Let's be wise. Let's wake ourselves up instead of having Hashem wake us up. And Hashem gave us the answer in a silver plan. The Rebbe explains very interestingly, everything that happens in the physical world is a symptom of the spiritual. Why is it that cancer, something that's only become rampant, only in the last, in the last generation, last hundred years. They never suffered from it before. Hardly. He says because cancer represents ego, arrogance is out of control. Because what's the cancer? That extra growth sucks out all the attention. It demands all the attention to itself. Why are you here? You're not part of the organ. You're not doing anything productive. I am because I am. And you suck all the life force and all the life energy and you kill the person. It's self-destructive. It's suicidal because you kill the patient and you kill yourself. The cancer cells kill themselves in the process. So that's represented by ego, by arrogance. Arrogance is out of control. Ego is out of control. Now, what's the antidote? God precedes the cure before the illness. Why do we have this illness? Because we have the spiritual illness when the world has become so egotistical and so arrogant, and even those who study Torah have become so egotistical and so arrogant, 
And the more Torah they study, it only fuels. The whole motivation to study Torah is ego and arrogance, to become perfect, to show off, to become a great person, to become famous, to stand out. So what's the antidote to this illness, terrible illness? The antidote is you have to destroy the tumor. You have to destroy the cancer cells. And in this case, destruction is healthy. You're, destroy, you're destroying the negative cells. Eradicate it. What does that mean spiritually? The answer is Hasidus. When you study Hasidus, you learn that there's no other reality but God. There is no ego. There is no I. You learn to become egolessness. The more you study Hasidus, the more egoless you become. The more godly you become. The more refined you become. The only difference is... That with radiation, radiation has a lot of negative side effects. But Hasidus has no negative side effects. <laughs> the more you can't study enough, the more you study, don't be afraid, well, you may end up destroying. No, you don't end up Hasidus. You only end up, when you study Torah, the inner parts of the Torah, you study Tanya, you only destroy the negative cells. You don't destroy a single healthy cell. On the contrary, the Torah has a simultaneous, a double effect. It strengthens the godly soul, the healthy cells. And it destroys only the negative cells. So the more Hasidus you study, the less egotistical, the less arrogant. It softens up. Your ego, your Yetzirah, it softens up your arrogance. And it strengthens, it gives strength, it gives vitamin T. It injects a strength to, that's what says, Oiz The Torah makes your godly soul stronger, while simultaneously it's Tushia, it's making your ego weaker, your arrogance weaker. So the more you study, the healthier you are. You can't get enough of it. The more Hasidus you study, the more you study about godliness, the more you delve deeper into the inner parts of the Torah. And you study it with the same depth like you study a piece of Talmud. You internalize it, you digest it, you understand it. That helps you to study Torah Lishma, to study Torah for all the right reasons. But nevertheless, despite everything, Hashem promises when a Jew studies Torah, eventually, eventually God promises every Jew will do teshuva. Even the most egotistical, most arrogant person is studying Torah for all the wrong reasons and is degrading the Torah and is sending the Torah into exile. And the Torah is in agony and God is in agony and his soul is in agony. Rachmanes, it's an Abba. Rachmanes, an Abaya, Rachmanes, an Rava. They're being schlepped to Allah Schwarz here, being schlepped to the deepest dungeons because of this Jew's impossible ego and impossible e- arrogance. But nevertheless, the Torah promises that even that Jew, who's the most difficult to deal with, a person who's religious and arrogant, a person who's religious and walks around with a holier-than-thou attitude, that's the most difficult person to deal with. Because he's distorting the whole Judaism. The whole Judaism is supposed to refine you and humble you. And instead, what, what has the Torah and the mitzvot, what is the effect of the Torah and mitzvot in this person, has become impossible. Has become so holier than thou, an ego, and arrogant. It's the exact opposite of what Torah is all about. The Torah is in such exile, Torah is in such darkness, Torah is in such pain. But nevertheless, only God knows how to reach every Jew. So God promises that even that Jew will be reached. And even that Jew will be healed. And that Jew will be helped. 
And eventually, because Mashiach is going to come, eventually Mashiach is going to come. And every Jew will be redeemed. Every last Jew will be redeemed. Even the religious Jew will be redeemed and become godly. No one's going to be pushed away from Hashem. It's a promise. Okay, David, you want to continue? Since it is certain that he will ultimately repent, whether in this incarnation or another, because no one banished from him by his sins will remain banished, but will ultimately repent. Alter Rebbe thus perceives two novel insights in the statement that one should always engage in Torah and mitzvot, even Shalom Lishma, etc. A. Progress from Shalom Lishma to Lishma is a certainty, not a possibility, since every sinner will ultimately repent. And the Alter Rebbe therefore adds the word certainly to the quotation. The Talmud doesn't say it, but the Rebbe explains that's what the Talmud means. That not it's a possibility to reach from the wrong intention to the proper intention, but certainly. Not only will the person advance from the state of Shalol Lishma to Lishma, but even the Torah that he studied, Shalol Lishma, will be elevated so that it attains the quality of Lishma. For when one repents and returns to God, his Torah returns with him. The aforesaid applies to one who engages in divine service for an ulterior mode of strictly shalom lishma. But if one acts neutrally, neither lishma or nor shalom lishma, then the matter is not contingent on repentance. Rather, as soon as he reviews the subject lishma, then even that which he had studied neutrally soars on high, attaching itself to and joining his present study. If it's neutral, it's parked in neutral, it's not soaring, it's not being elevated, but it's not also being dragged down to the abyss. It's just parked in neutral. So therefore there's no negative energy, there's no positive energy, there's no negative energy. So the moment you study once with a proper intention, then the Torah that you studied and was flat attaches itself to the Torah that studied properly, and all of that Torah is elevated. You don't need any special, you don't have to do teshuvah, you don't have to repent, you don't have to, it's automatic. Like the moment, it's just waiting for that moment to be elevated. The moment it's elevated, it schleps all the Torah that's, that's sitting there as part, the neutral, and all the Torah is elevated together. Since no Klipat Noga had yet clothed itself in his previous study, because his earlier study was not motivated by selfish reasons, the Torah studied is not in exile within the Klipa. It merely lacks the quality of Lishma. This fault is remedied by reviewing the subject Lishma. Therefore, a man should always occupy himself with Torah, even Shalom Lishma, for out of Shalom Lishma he will come to Lishma. The Torah that he studied will itself be elevated to the level of Lishma. In this case, the Lishma comes automatically when one reviews his studies. It is not contingent on repentance, as it is in the case of Torah study for personal motives. The same is true of prayer without kavanah, as discussed in the Zohar. When one recites the prayer once again, this time with kavanah, his earlier prayer ascends as well. Further, in Tanya, the Alter Rebbe states that even if from all one's prayers throughout the year, only one full prayer with kavanah can be assembled piecemeal, from one part of prayer said with kavanah one day, another part on another day, and so on, this one prayer is sufficient to elevate all the prayers of the entire year. For even where specific kavanah is lacking, 
the prayer is endowed with the comprehensive kavanah that one is praying to God. Because every year, a year is a unit for itself. So without the year, if we don't have a single prayer, you know, sometimes we feel that we're really praying. Most of the time we feel like we're just going through the motion. Once in a while you feel you're like really into it, really praying, you're moved, you're inspired, your heart is on fire, you're... You just feel intimate with Hashem. You feel godly. You feel close. You feel it's an experience. But that's rare. But even if that doesn't happen, you don't have a single prayer over the year. But sometimes Hashem can put together a little piece of prayer here, a little piece of prayer there. And from all the little pieces, God can put together one whole prayer. So if you have one whole prayer, that alone is sufficient to elevate all the prayers of the whole year. When there was no negative intent behind the prayer. You just prayed without intent, just by rote, mechanically, you're going through the motions because that's your habit, you're used to it. So there's no negative intent, there's no positive intent. By prayer, there could also be uh, an egotistical motivation. You want to show off. You know, this person was bragged once that he prays, he's so absorbed in his prayers, he doesn't feel anything, he's oblivious to his surroundings. His friend said, okay, I'll test you. So he was praying, and he took a sharp needle, and he gives him a little, a little prick. He holds himself in. You know, he can't show that he feels anything. He continues to pray. He didn't believe that he didn't trust. His friend didn't trust that he's absorbed in prayer, that he's oblivious to what's going on. So he pricks him again, this time a little harder. He holds himself in with his last strength, not to, not to scream, not a sound. Just to double-check that he's really absorbed in prayer, he does a third time, he really goes very deep. He couldn't hold himself in, he starts yelling. He says, what happened? I thought you were so absorbed in prayer, you don't, you know, you're oblivious to your surrounding. He says, yeah, it's true, but the first two times I didn't feel anything. <laughs> so, that's, so you, know, you could pray and show off. But most people, prayer, you just... It's an obligation, you're just going through the motion. Or it's an obligation that you've learned as a child, a Jew. You know, a Jew prays. You know, a Jew has to pray. But there's no negative intent. There's no positive intent. There's no negative intent. So as long as there's one prayer, it's waiting to be elevated. This is prayer. It's holy. The prayer is holy. It's divine. It's waiting to be elevated. So the moment there's one single prayer, it's enough to gather all the prayers of the whole year, and all of those prayers are elevated. The same thing is with, with Torah. All that Torah is waiting. You're accumulating all this vast amount of Torah that you've studied that's flat. There's no motivation. There's no godly motivation. There's no, but there's no negative motivation either. You're just studying. You're a Jew. And you know a Jew has to study Torah. You've been trained that way. It's a habit. And it's waiting for that once that you're going to study Torah because you're motivated to connect with godliness. And you're motivated... And when there's a godly motivation, there's a godly energy, then the Torah that you study, together with all the Torah that you've already studied, will automatically all of it be elevated. If, however, you have a negative intention, then it's not enough. If you have a negative intention, then it's not enough just to, one, study Torah with a proper intention. You have to do teshuva. You have to have a broken heart. You have to realize how vulgar you've been how low and disgusting you've been. You have to be disgusted when you realize how you can take something so holy. How could you take Judaism? 
How could you take Torah? How could you take something that's so godly and so divine and so pure and so holy and use it to control? People who hide behind religion to lord of other people, to control of other people, to feel holier than thou, to be arrogant, to set yourself up as someone holy and godly, to use, to distort, to abuse. That's abuse. That's sending the Torah into exile. When you abuse, no, no, when you abuse, you have to do teshuva. You can't just, okay, now I'm, now I'm studying Torah for the right reasons. No, no, no. The Torah you've already studied, you've abused. You've banished into exile. You've humiliated, you've insulted that Torah. You surrounded it with a negative energy. This needs a healing. You're sick. This needs a serious healing. This needs a serious, soul-stirring teshuva, realization of what you've done, regret of what you've done, a resolve that you'll never ever return to, the, to, to that path. And only when your soul is shaken, only when, you, when there's an inner stirring of your soul, only then could you elevate all the Torah that you've already studied, then you can elevate. So when the Talmud says, study Torah Shaloi Lishma, because eventually you'll come to Lishma, now the Rebbe says there's two, two levels. One is, all you need is to study Torah Lishma. The moment you discover the level of studying Torah for its own sake, for the divine level, then automatically all the Torah you study Shaloi Lishma is elevated. That's if you study Torah without any negative intention, without any positive intention. Intent. But if you study Torah with a negative intent, then it's not enough. You can't just suddenly start turn, learning Torah Lishma. There has to be a serious teshuva. You have to have a heart-to-heart with God. And your soul has to come back. And you have to be broken-hearted. And you have to... Your ego, your arrogance has to become shattered. And you have to become godly. And only then could you be healed. And when you're healed, then all the Torah that you studied could be elevated. But the good news is, the Torah promises, and this is a promise, and inevitably this will happen. Inevitably... You will be healed. Inevitably, you will do teshuvah. Because the Torah promises that every Jew eventually will do teshuvah. Every Jew will come back home to a place they never really left in the first place. So even the negative, so it's worthwhile for a Jew to study Torah for all the wrong reasons. Because eventually you will find your way home. But what does all of this teach us? That although the action, to sum up what we've studied in the last three chapters... 39, 38, and 37. That although the action is what matters most and the deed is what matters most and the mitzvah itself is what's divine, it's, there's no human fingerprints on it. It's the mitzvah, it's the God's will, it's the Torah, God's wisdom, and that is divine. And you can't impurify the Torah. You can't cause any impurities in the Torah. The Torah itself is, is pure and holy and divine. Nevertheless, a human being could send this Torah into exile. You can degrade the Torah. You can torture the Torah. We have the power to torture the Torah. We have the power to torture the divine. God gave us freedom of choice, and He placed His destiny in our hands. And we have the power to dump Him in the toilet, send Him to the dungeon, and cause Him horrible pain and agony. If we are egotistical and we are arrogant, we can't change the divine. The divine remains divine, but we're torturing 
We're taking the divine and sending it into the dungeon. And God is in tremendous agony. So therefore, God needs our personal, human, subjective involvement. You can't just say, the facts are what matters. I'm doing something divine, and divine will always remain divine, and that's all that matters. Who cares if I'm a refined person? Who cares if I'm an egoless person? What, what does it matter as long as I'm, I'm getting the job done? It's the facts on the ground, that's all that matters. God says, no, 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 no. You play a central role. The human being plays a central role. You have to be a mensch. I need you, I need your humanity. I need you to be a fine person. I need you to be a soulful person. I need you to be a spiritual person. I need you to be a kind person, a gentle person, a good person. I need you to be a man, an egoless person. I need your heart. I need your mind. I need your, your soul. I need you to be in touch with your godly spark. I need you to be centered, to be focused. I need you to feel, feel connected. And only then, then the Torah is elevated. Then the Torah can, can be elevated to its proper place. Otherwise, you're torturing. We have that power. It's in our hands. So don't dismiss the personal, the subjective, the individual. What difference do I make? What difference is it? Does it matter if I'm egotistical or not? What difference? As long as I'm getting the job done. No, no, no. God says, I need you. I need the personal. I need your personal involvement. I need your personal engagement. I need the human engagement. It's critical. It's essential. Otherwise, like a body without a soul, it's a corpse. And worse. It's not, because it's not only like a stone, it's worse. Actually, you're torturing. If the motivation behind the Torah study is ego and arrogance, the Torah is an exile. You're torturing causing illness. You're bringing negative energy into the world. You're taking this holy energy and you're actually increasing negative energy. Which you have to fix. That needs a mending, that needs a fixing, that needs a tshuva. Serious tshuva, a serious return, a serious change, serious transformation. Because you've added negative energy into the world. And you've tortured the poor Torah and you've tortured God. But nevertheless, the Torah promises eventually Every Jew will do teshuva. And therefore, since eventually every Jew will do teshuva, therefore, better study Torah. Even if you're a coarse human being and you're an arrogant human being and you're the exact opposite of everything the Torah stands for, the exact opposite of everything as divine and godly and holy and genuine and authentic, you're the biggest superficial, most arrogant. Nevertheless, study Torah. Do the right thing. Because eventually, you will do teshuva. It's a promise. Eventually, all, you will re-elevate all the Torah that you've studied and you'll make up all the torture of all the negative energy that you've brought into this world you will more than make up and you'll, all that Torah will now be elevated and you'll increase the divine energy in this world and you'll increase and bring light into the world and bring goodness into the world you'll make up you'll be commensurate commensurate to all the negative energy you brought into the world eventually you'll do tshuva and you're going to bring that much light into the world, and more goodness into the world, more kindness into the world, more godliness and mental kindness into the world. So this is the Hasidic program. The Hasidic program is to realize the essential, that the essential thing is really the mitzvah, is the deed, is the action. That's what matters most. And it's objective, and it's divine, and it's godly, and there are no human fingerprints in it. But at the same time, the mensch, the person, is central to this whole thing. 
the individual, where you're at, how refined you are, is essential. So it's not one or the other. Say, why, why focus on myself? Why should I think about myself? Why focus on myself? It's so selfish. Let me just do the right thing. Let me do the program. So who cares where I'm at? If I mean what I say. If I mean what I pray. If I love my fellow Jew with all my heart, I'm doing it heartfelt. It's a heart. I'm doing the favor heartfelt. With a smile. Sincerely. Who cares? Let me get with the program. Let me just do the program. It's all that matters. No, that's not the Hasidic program. That's not the Jewish program. Don't hide behind religion to cover up on your defects and your limitations. The Torah has to refine you. The Torah has to make you into a mensch. Where you're at is essential to the, to, to the whole Torah and the whole mitzvah. God says, I want your lishma. I want your holy intent. I want your proper intent. I want your awareness. I want your engagement. I want your involvement. I want your refinement. Your refinement is very precious. And every time you overcome your ego, and every time it's so precious to me. Working on yourself, changing. And that's the one thing we're in control of. We're not in control of others. We're so busy changing the world, but the one, the one person we could change is ourselves. No, no, I'm, that's secondary. That I have no time for. That, who cares about me? As long as I'm with the program, I'm doing the right thing. But you're not doing the other person a favor. You think if you're a coarse human being, what's the influence you're going to have on the other person if you're a coarse human being? The other person sees right through you. The other person sees how superficial you are, how insincere you are, how not genuine you are, how artificial. What's going to be his impression? This is Yiddishkeit. So you're not not even going to help the program. The main thing is to get the deed done. I'm helping another person. Who cares about myself? Who has time to worry about me? So selfish, so narrow-minded. Let me, just, let me just do great things and influence a lot of people. What kind of influence are you going to have in another person? Nebuch. The way you influence another person is by showing a living example. Words from the heart enter the heart. The deeper you allow Yiddishkeit to touch you, the deeper you allow Yiddishkeit to affect you, and to move you, the deeper you allow God to move you and to change you and to transform you and to go deeper into Yiddishkeit and to expand it and expand your horizons and to go higher and to aspire, that the greater your influence will be on others because others are not impressed by what you say, they're impressed by your personal living example, how you live. Words from the heart enter the heart. The deeper it goes into your heart, the deeper it's going to go into others. So even the program, you're being detrimental to the program. Even the objective will not get done if you ignore the personal and the subject. And it goes hand in hand. It's not one or the other. The more you help another Jew, the more, the deeper you, the more successful you will be in your own personal growth. The more you grow, the more it should inspire you in your interrelationships with others and your impact on the world around you and with others. This is a program that's genuine. God is genuine. Not only genuine, He's MS Lamita, He's the ultimate genuine. Genuine of genuine. And therefore, God is paradoxical. God squares the circle. It's personal, it's subjective, and it's objective simultaneously. Not only isn't one a contradiction with the other, one fuels the other. 
the more deeper, the more genuine, the more authentic you are, the more you will influence others. The more you influence others, the more authentic you'll become. Your personal growth and your, your communal outreach and your effect on the world around you and the physical quantity, quality, it's all interrelated, it's all interactive. From God's point of view, it's all one. And anyone who tries to make divisions, I'm only good at physical, getting the program done. That's all that's a matter is get the program. I, you, yourself, I grew up young. Well, who cares? I'm doing the right thing. No, no. That split, that dichotomy, that was Korach's sin. Korach comes from the world to split. That was Korach's sin. He made a split. He wanted to make a split between the spiritual, the personal, the subjective, the spiritual. The spiritual should be spiritual, and the physical should be physical. As long as the Jews were in the desert and they were spiritual, fine. Then we have a spiritual program. Then Moses is the leader. Moses is the most spiritual Jew. Fine. But now we're entering the land of Israel. Now the program is physical. Roll up your sleeves. Plow the land. We don't need a Moses anymore. Who cares about Moses? Here we need someone who's practical. Someone who can roll up his sleeve. That was Korah's sin and Korah's mistake. Terrible, terrible, terrible mistake. Because in, Jews, in Judaism, there's no dichotomy between the spiritual and the material. The whole point of making a dwelling place for God in this world is making a place for God's essence. And in God's essence, there's no split between this heaven and earth. There's no split between the spiritual and the physical, between the subjective and the objective. So anyone who makes a split and says it's one or the other, either we get with the program and all that matters is the practical and the results and influencing the other person, who cares where I'm at? I'm not a godly Jew and I'm not a spiritual Jew. What does it matter? Who cares? My mind is not developed and my heart is not developed. My soul is not developed. I don't have time to focus on myself. I'm busy with the great program, grand program. No, no. You missed the whole point. Karach was swallowed up in the ground. He missed the whole point. This is not Judaism. This is not making a dwelling place for God. Making a dwelling place for God, it's a whole package. It's making a dwelling place for God's essence. And God's essence is only revealed when there's no dichotomy and there's no split between spiritual and physical. The more you help another Jew and the more you get with the program of doing the practical and, doing the, and getting the job done and the objective, and the, the more spiritual you become, the deeper you become, the more sensitive you become, the more connected you become, the more aware you are. And the more aware you are, the greater your impact in the world around you. And it just keeps on fueling each other. And this is what Moses represents. There's no dichotomy between building, building the tabernacle and Moses being the most spiritual Jew, the greatest prophet that ever lived. Because it was Mo- the whole tabernacle was called in Moses' name. Moses' name. He is the builder. The most spiritual Jew. He is the builder. He is the one who makes the dwelling place for God. And only when you go as his emissary and empowered by Moshe and connected to Moshe because you're like Moshe, you also have an inner spiritual life. A genuine life, a deep life, a meaningful life. Then you can accomplish this mission of making a dwelling place for God, of taking the gold and the silver and the copper and making a dwelling place for God. So this is what Al Rebbe is wrestling with here and that's what he's trying to explain. There's no dichotomy. The same Torah, the same God that tells us that it's the action that matters most and it's the deed that matters most as expressed clearly and eloquently in Allah as we explained earlier. As he explained earlier. The same Torah 
says, you need the kavana. the intent is critical. You need, God wants the lishma. He wants a refined person. He doesn't want a coarse human being. He's in pain. You're torturing him when you not only aren't you making a dwelling place for God. Yes, you made a dwelling place, but you know where God is. You turned it into a dungeon. Instead of it being a house, a home, where God says, I feel comfortable, I feel at home, I feel like a luxurious palace, a five-star hotel, you put me in a dungeon. Yes, you brought me into this world. You've done the mitzvah. You studied the Torah. You studied the page of Talmud. You did the mitzvah. But, but you made this home of mine into a dungeon. I'm an exile. That's not the point. That's not what it's all about. It's like a body without a soul. I want to live in a beautiful home. Make it beautiful, luxurious, illuminated, clean, light, warm, inviting. That's where the intent. We need the lishma. We need the egolessness. We need the refinement. We need the, the, the spirituality, the sensitivity, the inner engagement, the inner involvement. A person has to have an inner life. It's not one or the other. Well, I'm busy with mitzayim. I'm busy with practical things. I don't have time for learning, for praying, for becoming a spiritual person. I'm... No, no, no. Alter Rebbe says here, anyone who says that misses the whole point. And the question is, are you making a dwelling place for God or are you making a dungeon for God? Of course, once God is in the dungeon, then you can do tshuva and you can transform the dungeon into, into a dwelling place because he's here. <laughs> but that's the ultimate. The ultimate is to make a dwelling place, a place where God feels comfortable, God feels at home. And they go hand in hand. And that's the Hasid, that was the whole revolution of the Hasidic movement. On one hand, the emphasis on the deed and the action, but on the other hand, the personal state of mind is very important. The emphasis on inner work. A person has to work on himself. A person has to be a refined person. A person has to be egoless. A person has to go deeper. Has to go higher and deeper and broaden his horizon and become more aware, more sensitive, and more refined and more godly and can, and Consciously connect with godliness. As Rabbi Hillel Parashar, probably the greatest Lubavitch Chassid that ever lived, used to say he's a half Rebbe. <laughs> so he once said that the more he was known to be very careful about mitzvah, he was like crazy about mitzvah. He took upon himself every single, he kept the mitzvah in the most beautiful way possible. Every single opinion he took into consideration and he did the mitzvah. He says, every time I study Hasidus, the more Hasidus I study, the more godliness I absorb and I internalize and I understand, the stricter I become, the more, the more mitzvah I start doing. And it motivates me to go even more, to do the mitzvah even better. And The more mitzvah I do, the more hidurim, the more beautification in the mitzvah I do, the more chumras I do, the stricter I am, the more it expands my mind. And it enables me to understand more chassidus. So he says, why do I study more chassidus? In order that I should expand my consciousness, in order that I should be able to take in more mitzvah, do the mitzvah even better. And why do I do more mitzvah? In order that I should be able to understand more chassidus. One led to the other, and one fueled the other, and, and a never-ending, endless cycle. The more chassidus he studied, the more practical he became. The more practical he became, the more, the more the better he understood, the deeper he went into himself, and the deeper he understood, and the deeper his relationship with God. Not only is there a contradiction, they actually fuel each other. This is the Chabad approach. This is the essence of Chabad chassidus. 
This is the essence of Judaism. It's the essence of Hasidic, Hasidic approach. The Rebbe would always remind us that we are a unique generation. There's never been a generation like ours, and there never will be. We are the transitional generation, the last generation of Golos, of exile, and we will be the first generation of Geula, of redemption. What an awesome privilege we have, and what a sacred responsibility we carry on our shoulders. So what are we going to do about it? How are we going to bring the curtain down on the Golas once and for all? Well, Mashiach himself gave the secret away in his famous encounter with the Baal Shem Tev. He tells the Baal Shem Tev that when your wellsprings and the teachings of Hasidus will spread to every corner of the world, then and only then will Mashiach come. And therefore the Alter Rebbe sacrificed his life to carry out this directive to the Baal Shem Tev by writing and publishing the Tanya. And all the Rebbe's sacrificed themselves to publicize and to expound on the teachings of the Tanya. And the Rebbe, the seventh, the Shabbos of all the Rebbe's, published over 6,000 Tanyas, literally in every city of the world. And now, for the first time in history, through LessonsInTanya.com, Tanya in depth is available and accessible. 24-6 to hundreds of thousands, Jews as well as non-Jews, in dozens of countries all around the world. Now that you've had the personal experience and the pleasure to study the Tanya, we ask you to please partner with us to make the entire Tanya available and easily accessible to each and every Jew and to the entire world. Please help turn the wish of Mashiach, the dream of the Alter Rebbe, and the vision of the Rebbe into a reality. On behalf of all of us here at LessonsInTanya.com, thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And a special thank you for the good deed that you're about to do. In honor of your tzedakah, we will merit the coming of Mashiach now, when we'll learn Tanya from the Alter Rebbe himself.